Many of the things that are born of innovation occurred during a time of crisis. One notable story comes to us from ancient Greek mythology concerning the incarceration of the great architect and inventor Daedalus. After designing the fabled labyrinth for King Minos, he was repaid by the tyrannous king by being imprisoned in his own creation. To escape, Daedalus famously fashioned artificial wings from feathers and wax and literally flew the coop. Today we live in an age where air flight has once again largely become a novelty thanks to COVID-19. While individual crises may change over time, crisis itself looms ever-present, and one of the best antidotes is to be ready with an innovator's mindset to meet the challenge head-on. I'm your host, Paul Teese, and in this episode of If When, I spoke with Georgette Kaiser, Operating Executive for the Carlyle Group and Jacob's Board Member, and Heather Wishart-Smith, Jacob's Senior Vice President of Technology and Innovation. During our conversation, we discussed their thoughts on what are the most pressing problems for organizations contemplating their innovation strategies, how they stay on top of tech trends and disruptions, and what may be the state of the engineering, construction, and technologies industries in the next 10 to 20 years. So, Georgette and Heather, thank you so much uh, for joining me today. I'm really interested and intrigued by this topic of organizational innovation. And uh, Heather, to kick things off, I'd like to begin with you. What do you think are the most pressing problems for organizations when they consider the current and future states of their innovation strategies? So, you know, this, of course, Paul, is a really, really challenging time for all organizations. You know, of course, we've got the the COVID-19 pandemic. We've got long overdue calls for racial justice. And then we've got all of the concerns that have been plaguing us for a long time, things like climate change, resilience, threats from cybersecurity, terrorism. And I think the natural tendency is for organizations to just, and individuals for that matter, is to just bunker down, to stick to the main business, stick to the traditional delivery methods, and maybe even cut back on programs like innovation because they're seen more as an unaffordable luxury. But, you know, I would really submit that crisis is the time to innovate. It's not the time to pull back. We've been hearing for years that necessity is the mother of invention and quite a bit more that that crisis is the mother of innovation. So I think that pulling back on innovation and, you know, just focusing solely on traditional delivery methods, it may protect you short term, but leading with innovation is really an investment for your long term future. And one of the things that I'm really proud of Jacobs for is that when the pandemic first hit, that I, as the SVP for Technology and Innovation, that I was asked to stand up and lead what we call our COVID-19 health system critical response team. So we've already been, we were already the number one ranked healthcare firm by engineering news record ENR, but what we needed was a global approach to COVID. By asking me to take that on and create it and stand it up and take the leadership, I think it really allowed us in a time of crisis to take an innovative, problem-centric approach to the pandemic, and that's what's shaping our health system strategy moving forward and really beyond that as well. Yeah, that is really forward-thinking, you know, that they would ask the innovation executive to, to lead the right-out-of-the-gate response to the, the health crisis. So, you know, when you, when you kind of peel back a little bit and you want to look at the, the fundamentals of an organization's innovation strategy, what do you see, Heather, uh, are the core components for evolving an organization's innovation strategy? So I really think it, it all starts with culture. And, and a lot of people talk about culture, but having that and, and having a culture of innovation, but having that culture that challenges the status quo, that embraces change, 
and that values failure as a means of learning, that's what's really critical to innovation strategy. And I think it also become, it's about becoming more comfortable with unfinished solutions as a way of testing the market and of testing the solution. And in the innovation world, it's many times called a, a minimum viable product or MVP. Mm-hmm. And I think most organizations are, you know, in, including us in the past, we've been really accustomed to polishing and refining a product until it's nearly perfect before we're willing to release it to the market. But innovation really demands that more iterative approach and for so many reasons. It's to avoid irrelevance, it's in order to be first to market, and it's in order to learn and improve. So I frequently tell teams that I'd rather release an imperfect, not quite finished solution today than an outdated, perfect one that nobody wants tomorrow. So shifting the culture from one that is too timid to release something that isn't done Mm-hmm. In order to shift into one that seeks input and learning from an MVP, that's what's really critical. Hmm. And and then Georgette, kind of picking up on this theme on culture and the and the the role that it plays. You know, let me ask you, what excites you the most about where trends in organizational uh, innovation are headed, and how important do you see culture being when considering the value and potential of an organization? So I, I, I have to tell you, um, I, I agree with everything that Heather has said, and I just have always been a firm believer, believer that culture trumps everything, that it helps with the growth of a company, that you have to have a very good control culture or the culture will take over the whole company. And so I, I firmly believe that CEOs from the top have to figure out working with their organization, understand what they want that culture to be, define it ensure it's transparent to everyone what they want, and then ensure that all their leaders can help drive the culture that's needed there. And you asked me like what kind of, you know, excites me about all the trends and organizational um, innovation and where we're headed. I mean, there are, uh, it's just exciting to me kind of to see the way that that people are um, really thinking about innovation and culture now, and that people are starting to realize that the mindset of innovation has to be developed and so it's systemic across the organization so that people are allowed to think freely um, instead of being stuck in a box and having to do things a certain way. Um, so the mindset of, of an innovation is something that you have to cultivate going forward. I love the idea how new firms, and, and Heather's been doing a lot of this, are starting innovation centers and, and having innovation events and, and things like that, because that also drives to help with um, the type of the way that they do their recruiting and getting those types of minds that think freely to kind of come into a firm to kind of help, you know, with that innovation, you know, innovative culture they're trying to put in place. So if you think about just kind of the development of the whole firm, all the things that you can put in place with respect to centers, you know, physical spaces or the tools that are used for innovation to help drive people's thinking, um, it's actually very exciting for the future and where we're headed because we'll have just people who are just incredibly intellectually curious people bringing new ideas to the table and sharing those ideas across a whole firm. Hmm. So, and then, you know, kind of taking that forward a little bit, you know, Georgette, you're, you're on the Jacobs board of directors. And so I want to ask you kind of from a board of directors viewpoint, you know, what are the top two to three issues that a typical board of directors, and maybe there's no such thing as a typical board of directors, but what are, would you say are the top two to three issues a, a board of directors might want solved for that can be addressed by a robust innovation strategy? So Jacobs is, is a very innovative company and, and, and thought, thought leadership is key there. And if you think of the board of directors and one thing we're thinking about with Jacobs all the time 
is especially when it comes to the human capital strategy mm-hmm. um, and ensuring that you have an incredibly innovative human capital strategy because Jacobs has to have you know, the brightest minds, you know, all the time working across, you know, global initiatives, across different types of projects that are either government related or, or commercial or private related, um, having a, a, a strong strategy in place on how they will attract and retain and develop um, a diverse culture of people is extremely important. So as the board of director and the rest of my, my peers on the Jacobs board, knowing that strategy continually have conversations all the time. Probably almost every board meeting we're talking about where we are with respect to the human capital strategy. So that's a very important one for us. Um, And also when it comes to innovation also, I mean, there's a lot of risk uh, in a lot of the projects that we take on across Jacobs. So that whole enterprise risk strategy um, is extremely important to the board. And it's not only the cybersecurity side, you know, of the risks that you're thinking about things and people, that's what the first thing people think about. Mm-hmm. But you're dealing with a lot of data privacy issues. Mm-hmm. If you deal with, think about how we deal with social media nowadays, all of those issues, mm-hmm. geopolitical issues. So having a strong um, enterprise risk management strategy um, that's coming out of the business lines of Jacobs and understanding those is really important to the board members also. Okay. And then Heather, to kind of kind of wrap that up, we're talking about risk, you know, and particularly a large organization and its appetite for risk or risk avoidance and in culture, you know, how should an organization balance agility and governance when promoting a shift in its innovation strategy? Sure. So I, I think, you know, that's, that's really hard with traditional organizations and particularly large traditional organizations because, you know, when you combine large and traditional and public sector companies, they, they tend to be risk averse and as a result, place some very understandable yet time consuming and bureaucratic processes in place that quite frankly can stifle innovation. So I'm not suggesting that we all throw caution to the wind and bet the company balance sheet on every single idea, but there are some ways to balance agility with governance and they include things like engaging multifunctional teams. So get legal, HR, IT, finance, and just a a cross-section of disciplines engaged from the very beginning in order to bake in the precautions and the risk management rather than seeking approval at the very end. It talks a lot, I think it's it's important to talk a lot about the, the mindset that Georgette mentioned earlier, which is to create a culture of getting to yes. So, so often it's easier for someone to say no, particularly when they're blindsided or broadsided by a solution as it's heading out the door. Um, so, so work to, to increase that mindset, work to train people to get to yes, and then take small, manageable, calculated risks rather than big, huge ones. But that's, again, where the MVP, that minimum viable product comes in. And, and Paul, I like how Heather says about getting to yes. Because I think um, in an innovative group also, you get to yes, but you can get to yes a million different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the beauty of the innovation, of, of the way that people think and how they may solve the problems differently. No, absolutely. And then pivoting just a little bit, and, and one of the things Heather and I, we, we talk about constantly, she you know, uh, reminds me that you know, not all technology is innovative. And not all innovations are based on technology. You know, it, it, there's a role that technology can play, but it's not, it's not mandatory. And so, Georgette, and, you know, kind of picking up on some of the technology aspects of this, I want to first ask you, Georgette, what are some disruptive technologies that command your attention the most right now? 
So I'll, I'll talk about technologies, but I do like what you just, what Heather said to you, because when I think of innovation, I don't always think of technologies. I think of solutions and processes and things that get there, and technology is the leverage point mm -hmm. to help us drive it further. And so I, I like Heather's thinking um, around innovation, um, but two of the, the, the major disruptive technologies, and one that I, I, um, I tell people to keep their eye on, um, it's coming quickly, is machine learning. Because the, the, and, it's, and it's more than just the machine learning and the ability for computers to continue to learn from each other, but it's all of the legal and digital rights issues, all of that that goes around it that we have to watch very closely. But I think machine learning is going to, and I always tell people this, it's disrupting the world. It's also causing us to rethink like our whole educational systems now because a lot of people begin, are beginning to uh, get displaced from their jobs because of certain things that are happening. So we're figuring out how to retool and retrain people very quickly in a different way so that they're, they're ready for this new world that's coming with machine learning. And along with me, machine learning is intelligent automations. Um, which is another big piece. I mean, if you look at everything that's happening with Amazon, um, and it's funny, uh, when Bezos first came out, you know, he wasn't actually thinking about the impact that all these intelligent automations could actually have on society. You know, but as we, as we kept going, he realized a number of people that were actually losing jobs in, in, in you know, in, in certain areas. And now he as a company is committing to retooling and retraining people, you know, for this new society that we're going in. I used to worry about it a lot, but now I really see leaders, you know, CEOs, innovative people beginning to think about right, how do we bring other people along as we're going through all these other disruptive technologies that are just changing our whole landscape as we go forward. So that, that makes me feel a whole lot better. It used to be very scary to me probably about four years ago when I was seeing just a group of people being left behind from disruptive technologies. Yeah, and it's and I I'm seeing more and more that you're seeing companies will actually are looking at the the ethics of you know some of these emerging technologies like AI and machine learning because of the disruptive potential that automation yeah. places you know a lot highly repetitive tasks you know tasks that people don't necessarily want to do but you know then it becomes incumbent on these organizations to start reskilling and upskilling their talent you know and finding ways to keep their workforce you know, relevant in a rapidly changing world. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's something that we, we have to think about. And, and, and you have to think about like what's happening with like COVID has been placed on top of all this mm. and look what it's done to our educational system. So now it's really driving change and getting us to think about our whole educational system and how we, you know, train for the future. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For sure, for sure. So, so Georgette, uh, kind of as an antecedent to this that question, what, what technological developments in your view are the most overhyped? And then maybe those that are the most underhyped. So there are certain things I just think are, are, are overhyped. So when people say digital transformation to me, I always just cringe because I think it's, it's a word that mm -hmm. is just used so much. Mm -hmm. um, and it, and it's, it's important because we actually have to figure out how to digitize organizations, you know, based on the needs of the people, but it's just a word that's just thrown around so much and people are like, what does it mean? Is it the cloud? Is it, you know, is it automations? Is it what, you know, and we have to break it down and, and give some understanding to it. 5G, which I think is extremely important for the future, but we're probably about five years away before the regular consumer, you know, will actually have a good understanding, you know, of, of, of how it will be used for them. So it's one that's kind of, you know, to me, it's overhyped. 
And then things that are under hype though, I, I do personally feel that when it comes to privacy and information management, mm -hmm. I think it's under hyped. And I think that the, the, the legal items around this is very important for our future. And there are things that, um, you know, you see how CCPA came in very quickly for the California Production Act and every state may be doing that soon. And so these are things that companies have to think about, you know, when the EU came in with the GDPR, right. um, you know, and what's going to happen when that comes, you know, when, when that legislation, you know, hits globally and what do companies have to do you know, to drive that change? Because it's costly to put a lot of the changes that are needed for this legislation in place. Those are things to me that are underhyped. Yeah, and I think you're you're spot on with the, the data privacy because you know like when GDPR hit back in 2018, you know there was a lot of attention on the front side because people could see the financial penalties. I think it's like four percent of your annual revenue. Right. I mean, it can be huge impact, and so the, I think a lot of companies were really concerned about privacy. But then, you know, now it's it's not bubbled up as much. You know, or at least it hasn't been making the news cycle as it was back then. But you're right. You know, there's there's so much risk that you take on with privacy with data. And then you layer in things like, you know, IoT and machine learning and all this data that we're constantly handling. It's a huge amount of risk if you're not, if you're not careful. Yeah. And I was, and Paul, I was thinking about your question last night also with um, just thinking about the overhype and, and what it also hit me, which is interesting because of COVID, like mm -hmm. bio, biometrics was like very overhyped. But if you think about what has <laughs> happened with COVID, it's mm -hmm. like now people really care about two-factor authentication. Like that's important mm -hmm. now. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> and then Heather, so, um, you know, in, in terms of kind of coming back full circle with the, the um, you know, risk aversion and stuff and, and talking about, you know, that technology angle, you know, what strategies work best in your view for leading potentially risk adverse organizations to evolve their innovation ecosystems? Yeah, so I think I've addressed some of them already. We, mm -hmm. you know, I mentioned engaging multifunctional teams from the start. Don't wait until the solution's about out the door. Uh, working to create a culture of getting to yes. And then, of course, that iterative approach by using MVPs that then allow you to take small manageable risks and then learn from them and then improve, iterate, learn from them, learn, improve, iterate, you know, from there and then scale from there. I think those are all really good strategies that work. But I think it also takes visible leadership from the top to demonstrate the value that these leaders place on innovation and that they're not just talking about it, but they're actively getting involved. They're spending their time. They're providing sufficient resources. And they're doing all this to invest in making sure that these innovation strategies are successful. We're talking about some very cutting edge emerging technologies that are disrupting businesses and you know, so these next couple of questions I have for both of you are around keeping up, you know, uh, and I think it's, I think there's pressure on all of us, frankly, anyone who's in a professional field or, or otherwise even, you know, to try to keep up with all the changes that are occurring around us. So my, my first question here is for Georgette, and it's how do you stay on top of current trends, you know, given the seemingly hyper accelerated nature of technological development? So, so well, I read an awful lot. So when I was a CIO, I was heavily involved in the project. So, you know, I had more hands-on kind of touching feeling what was happening there. Mm -hmm. um, and now um, as an operating executive, as a board of directors, I'm constantly reading, 
the National Association of Corporate Directors has incredible information for directors to kind of keep them abreast of things. I attend, I read all the podcasts that Jacobs puts out on their websites, which are excellent um, mm-hmm. podcasts and, and videos on thought leadership. And I attend a lot of conferences, but now they're all virtual conferences online, um, looking at new technologies. And I also, I have two young sons, both engineers, um, one's 25 and one's 21. Um, And we are in constant conversation all the time. And they keep me on my toes uh, on what's happening out there. And, 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 And it's true. I've always, you know, gone to young people to figure out what are they doing? What are they liking? What's, what are they finding very useful? Because that human experience from them you know, what kind of guide the us more seasoned people um, on uh, what's out there and, and, and what's coming next. Reaching out to a lot of young people a lot of times and talking to them and doing a lot of reading, a lot of research. And, you know, I love to visit companies when we were traveling a lot just to kind of look at their products, see what they have, you know, see if things make sense to me, um, mm-hmm. asking a lot of questions all the time. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then Heather, when you think about, you know, what George is saying about uh, you know, keeping up with young people, you think about career trajectory and talent acquisition, and then also just the fact that young people tend to be, tend to be, you know, more embracing, let's say, of, of accelerated technology than maybe their older peers, with notable exceptions, of course, you know, <laughs> uh, myself included, um, I will say. But, um, you know, so what strategies, Heather, must today's professionals undertake to future-proof their careers? Given the accelerated pace of disruption, you know, how might an innovation-friendly mindset help them do that? And then on the flip side, what do hiring companies need to do to gain the advantage in the war for talent? Yeah, so I think um, what a lot of what Georgette was getting to is really making sure that you have that commitment to lifelong learning. So in addition to seeking input from those who might be younger than you who have different experiences, I think those who are just now entering the workforce need to recognize that the pace of change has accelerated to the point where a four-year degree cannot provide you with the skills you need to work a full career. We all need to have that commitment to lifelong learning. And that can and should come from a variety of areas, everything from reading, as Georgette said, to podcasts like we're recording right now, TED Talks, online and in-person courses, you know, when when we can get back to in-person courses. But also, um, you know, Georgette mentioned conferences, but I would say volunteer work as well. And I'm not suggesting that everyone focus exclusively on technical topics, technical manuals. We should all be looking to get a diverse, a varied education throughout our careers. So that includes things like reading biographies, reading historical fiction that's set maybe in a culture or a time frame that you might not have any familiarity with, mm-hmm. maybe traveling or volunteering to help others. And I think it's that sort of thing that will help to provide us with greater diversity of thought to our careers, you know, and to our communities. You mentioned how might an innovation-friendly mindset help, help to do that. I think it's just constantly having that thirst for knowledge, that quest for additional information, mm-hmm. and having that mindset where you're not afraid to try new things. You're embracing failure as a path towards learning. I think a lot of people talk about, you know, embrace failure. Well, okay, but what are you trying to get out of that? You're trying to use it to learn so you not only don't do it again, but more importantly, that you make your next solution better. Mm -hmm. But also constantly, relentlessly, just constantly ask why in order to get to the root of the problem. Start with the problem. Don't start with the solution. Mm -hmm. And constantly ask yourself, constantly ask your teams, what problem are we trying to solve? Mm. And I think you asked also about hiring companies and and what they need to do. 
I think providing that innovation culture is what it takes to gain an advantage in the war for talent. The first step, of course, is just to get people interested, get them in the door. And my personal preference in terms of how to do that is through proofs. I think that there's a lot of, um, you know, what they call innovation theater out there. There's a lot of smoke and mirrors, Mm -hmm. but by constantly showing the proofs, you can show what you've done instead of just talking about the word of the day. So I think engaging candidates by presenting these proofs by, say, guest lecturing at universities, by posting on LinkedIn, provide opportunities for new hires to apply and expand their varied skills. Maybe that's a rotational program. Maybe that's a training opportunity. And maybe it's just inviting junior staff to meetings or to present at a meeting where they might not ordinarily even get invited. I think one of the greatest risks that we have within the engineering industry is of turning away and turning away that next generation of graduates. If we're recruiting graduates from school when they have these bright ideas about how to work across disciplines, they've done research in things like 3D printing and programming, robotics, automated design, and then we sit them down at a desk and make them just you know, design door details or exit signs, and we don't give them the chance to apply that creative, innovative knowledge, I'm afraid that we're going to leave, that they're all going to leave the engineering industry. Mm. Um, and rather than closing the divide between technology and engineering, they're just going to opt out. Mm. And then Georgette, so kind of picking up on that, you know, we're talking about people at the earlier stages of their careers, but how about organizations at the earlier stage of their life cycle, you know, namely like startups and companies that are out there exploring new technology. And so the question would be, when new technology arises, how do you determine when it's better to develop it in-house, acquire it, or partner with it? And what criteria do you see goes into the decision-making process? So when I was in my C-suite side of items, um, I can honestly tell you a big part of the decision process, I mean, was simple up front, but then more complex as you dug into it that things that were standard, things that were operational, typically those were items that you knew you were gonna buy. And that as you got closer to the customer and things that were uh, needed more art to it, you know, had um, more of the, the, the customer experience thinking, you might end up doing more of a, a, a build at that point. But now a lot of the smaller startups are, especially because of machine learning, are beginning to really capture the customer experience in different ways and can develop products that kind of get you almost 80% there up front um, so that you don't have to build as much in-house, but you can customize around the edges more. So that was always part of the, of the thought process, though. So more on the back end, you standardize. More on the front end, you would, you would build in-house. Yeah, that's but interesting. It's changed, but it's changed a lot with new technologies. Yeah, and I mean, I think that that makes that makes perfect sense because you can really uh, then articulate your own particular touch points for your customers, right? Because you know your customers better than like you know something that you know, entity outside of your organization. Right. Right. No, yeah. oh, that yeah, that's smart thinking. My last question for today I have is for Heather, and it's kind of around where do we go from here? Uh, you know, and the engineering side in particular. The question is, what do you think the state of the engineering, construction, and technologies industries are going to look like in the next 10 to 20 years? Do you see more market entrants and competitors or fewer? And what technologies and skill sets do you think will be at the forefront? So 
So I, I think that we'll see very few of the traditional architecture, engineering, construction companies in place. That line between technology and design, it's increasingly becoming blurred. You see things like uh, Sidewalk Labs, their Smart City project in Toronto, and granted that project's been terminated, but projects like that will be back. They'll be back and they'll be smarter the next time around, particularly when it comes to the privacy considerations that Georgette mentioned. Mm -hmm. uh, we've seen that also, you look at Elon Musk's The Boring Company, The Hyperloop. We see it in tech companies and autonomous vehicles. We've seen it with SpaceX and the, um, you know, just having launched Americans to the International Space Center um, station rather a, a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And you look at, you know, that line is increasingly becoming blurred. So between technology companies and, and that more uh, traditional engineering services. And so I think that the market entrance and the competitors are going to be different than the ones in the past and the ones that are able to best meld the technology with the traditional side, I think are, will be the ones that will, that will have the most lasting power. You know, there are a number of technologies, many of which Georgette's already mentioned. I'll add a few. She talked a lot about machine learning, but um, I'll add autonomous design, which is fueled by machine learning, mm -hmm. um, you know, artificial intelligence, IOT, data analytics. All of this, of course, is facilitated by the shift to cloud and now edge computing. And then, of course, the need for it to be protected by cybersecurity and controls. So I think there's a lot of room for growth in the traditional, you know, AEC, architecture, engineering, construction industry, just with these technologies alone. And I think that, you know, Georgia had mentioned biometrics as well. The, the pandemic is going to only accelerate these emerging technologies like biometrics, but also um, biometrics, but also like robotics. And um, anything that can improve tracking and decrease the reliance on human workers and therefore help to pre prevent the, the spread of disease and prevent people from going into dangerous uh, environments. And all of it, of course, will be facilitated by other emerging technologies, things like quantum computing, uh, 5G. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's going to result, I think, in an increase in the skill set of firms. So tech companies will be acquiring traditional skill sets. Traditional companies will be acquiring tech skill sets. They're going to be more competitors. These are, you know, of course, former competitors who now collaborate together in order to be more successful with new market opportunities. But we keep talking about mindset. It keeps coming back to a shift in behavior, a shift in mindset, not being risk averse, being open to new ideas, and also not allowing any of us, um, whether as individuals or, or as organizations, to get comfortable in our silos if we want to endure. We need to be pushing beyond both from the perspective of lifelong learning for ourselves and from the perspective of branching out into new territory as organizations. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I want to thank you, Georgette and Heather, so much for your, your time and insights today. It's fascinating. And there's a lot, a lot going on with companies across the globe and with these technologies. And so, you know, it seems like the takeaway is embrace change, embrace learning be open and innovative and creative. And, you know, that's going to be the recipe for, uh, to survive and thrive. So I want to thank you both very much for your time today. Thank, thank you, you for having us.